Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. You know the drill. You're alone in the middle of a foggy field and there's no one for miles except the person following you. There's no one coming to help you. Isolation is an ever-present theme in horror fiction, one that has become part of reality for many of us recently. But isolation doesn't have to be physical. Emotional isolation can be just as terrifying. The Oxford English Dictionary defines isolated as placed or standing apart or alone, detached or separate from other things or persons, unconnected with anything else, solitary. Meanwhile, Aristotle said, he who is unable to live in society or who has no need because he is sufficient for himself must be either a beast or God. But is isolation always so bad? And what do we mean by isolation when it comes to horror narratives? Well, we are very lucky to have the fabulous Melinda Salisbury join us in this episode's discussion of just that. So Melinda has been twice nominated for the Carnegie Medal and is the best-selling author of the Sin Eater's Daughter series, The State of Sorrow Duology, and her most recent novel, Hold Back the Tide. Thank you for joining us, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's kick off this discussion with just kind of a general, like, what do we mean by isolation, especially when it comes to horror? Because, you know, as I mentioned, there is kind of a difference between the physical versus the the psychological and emotional kind of isolation. So so what do we mean by that? And and how does that usually come out in in horror fiction? Well, I I think it's, it's, there's two kinds. It's physical. So the, the idea of literally being alone and being the only person who is, experiencing or seems to be experiencing what's happening and then psychological so the feeling that you are the only person who is experiencing or seems to be experiencing um whatever is terrorizing you um or are the only person who appears to be aware of the truth of it so we see a lot of a lot of horror tropes there's always the first person to realize there's a problem and they're kind of the the journey they have to go on to convince other people that there is a problem before they can even begin to deal with um whatever it is that's it's terrorizing them. Yeah, I mean, I've just started reading Ninth House by Lee Bardugo, and it made me think of this when her, you know, the main character talks about how, you know, most of her life she's seen ghosts, basically, and she didn't understand why no one else could see these ghosts. And it seemed like that is very much the psychological aspect where it's far more scary in a way when you can see something that no one else can. So you know something's wrong, but no one else will believe you. No one else can experience the same thing that you're experiencing. And I think in some ways that that, certainly for me, that's more terrifying than being physically alone in some kind of environment, no matter how sinister. I think that's right. And then you have the kind of Cassandra element as well, where you're the only person who is aware of something and you're desperately trying to convey that there's a problem and that, that something is terribly wrong and things are going to get even wronger. But um, no one is listening. No one believes you until it's far too late. And then all the prophecies in the world or all the foresight or foreknowledge in the world isn't going to save you. 
that's why I think quite a lot of kids turn up in horror novels because you've kind of got this idea of not being listened to and <laughs> the main culprits of that are children. And mostly because what they say is probably manipulative or aimed to get chocolate out of adults. But there are those genuine times when something terrible happens and you try to explain it to the adults around you, the adults who are supposed to protect you, and they're just not interested. And I think there's a lot of us who've experienced that as kids. And writing good horror fiction is always getting to the to the grips of what will scare everybody because horror is so subjective you can't scare everybody all the time but that fear of being not listened to is one I think we all carry with us from our childhood. Uh, Yes does anyone uh, remember the book Not Now Bernard? I don't know. What? Oh my god I was expecting everyone to jump on that like it's been around since I was a kid and that's the whole premise of the book. Melinda do you know that one? Is he the boy who goes into the garden and is eaten by a monster? <laughs> like, he, does he spend yes. the entire book trying to tell his mum, mum, there's a monster in the garden? Yes! Like, I'm sorry, Bernard, I've got to pay the mortgage and do the washing up and cook for dinner. And then I'll... Goodbye, Bernard. Yes, um, it's really dark. Like, the whole book. He's like, mum, dad, there's a monster. And they're like, not now, Bernard, not now, Bernard. And in the end, the so the monster eats Bernard and then goes into his, like, bed and sits, sleeps in his bed and then like the mother comes in with like tea and don't know milk and cookies and uh the monster is like and she goes not now bernard and then the monster eats the parents and that's the end of the story (laughs) oh my god wow that's harrowing (laughs) it's just a picture book (laughs) okay so yeah i mean i think that that totally backs up what charlotte was saying about the fact that you know isolation psychological isolation and, and and the idea of not being believed and not having anyone to share your personal experience with you is truly one of the most horrifying things in this world. It's interesting you should say that because I was thinking about Premi Mohammed, who was our guest a few episodes back. And in her book, Beneath the Rising, she's kind of got teenagers and one of them has left school, one of them is a, a genius. And Although they're incredibly competent, there is still this element that keeps cropping up of, we can't tell the adults because they won't believe me. And it's not because she's not trustworthy. It's just, it's such an incredible cosmic event that they're all just going to say, yeah, yeah, whatever. But there's also this underlying thing all the way through about how Joanna, who is this amazing childhood prodigy, is getting a load of stick because she's a girl. And there's one bit where she says, other scientists have peers I have fans. And it's kind of bringing together the idea of being a child and in particular being a woman or girl, I suppose, still. And it just kind of doubly means that you're not listened to because you're not listened to by the adults. And there is one bit where she trusts one of the adults and he kind of betrays her and all goes horribly wrong. Um, but also not being listened to by your people who should be your peers because they just kind of look down on you. So I think there's lots of different ways to be isolated. And I mean, Premie's book isn't about isolation, it's about cosmic horror. But I just thought it was something that, you know, was really interesting to explore and and kind of thrown in there. And one of the other things I tend to find is people being separated by secrets or guilt that they carry. I mean, how many horror films have we seen and how many horror books we've read where there's one character who just looks on edge all the time and then it gets to the end and some terrible secret is revealed. And you can tell all the way through that they are 
carrying this and it is separating them from everyone else and no one else can quite help them until they actually admit this secret or purge themselves of this guilt, at which point you can then fight the monster or the event or the serial killer, whatever it was. But it is all tied up with the secret. And once it's shared, that's when the isolation stops and the person in question can start looking for help. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, separation is definitely one of those functions that isolation plays in horror narratives. But what what other kinds of functions does isolation play? And like, how, how do we see that in those stories? I think a lot of it comes back to the fact that we are fundamentally by nature pack animals. Um, humans are species. We function best in groups. Um, so anytime we are isolated, we are removed from that space where we are most comfortable and that leaves us feeling vulnerable and not only feeling vulnerable, but physically vulnerable to attack. Um, so if you think about nature documentaries, when you see predators working together to isolate a prey animal from the herd, so they will go for the oldest or the youngest or the sickest or whichever one they can get away from the others. And then they will harry that one until it's too exhausted and weakened um, to, to, to fight. And um, if we stay with a group, we present a target that is potentially too large to be worth attacking but when we are alone when we are isolated uh, whether that's physically or psychologically we are much easier pickings i absolutely agree and it's like you said about nature and one of the writing exercises that i've I've done in the past is looking what the primal drive is for a particular character. So if it's romance, what is their primal need? It might be the need to feed themselves or to look after their kids or to probably get a husband because that's usually in the romance that I read, which is all Regency, it's all about getting a husband so that they can fulfill these primal needs of money, security, um, care for their children, that kind of thing. But when it comes to horror, you want to ask what is the primal fear? And I think you're really right about nature. It's been hardwired into us that safety is in numbers and safety is in daylight. And if you remove either of those things, then all of a sudden you are very, very vulnerable. And I think back from caveman ages, that has really been a driving force. We must stay together and we must we must stay in daylight. Sorry, I'm laughing because I was thinking of um, Scream when it's like, don't go off on your own. It's one of the key rules of horror films. And then they end up going off on their own and dying or not dying according to what is most comedic. But yeah, I think there's a, a definite primal fear there. Isolation is vulnerability, but then writers use that. It's like isolation, as you were saying, you know, you you can tell that someone's carrying their weight of the secret, but, you know, also as soon as the author or the director or someone tips their hat to say that character is isolated, the reader or the, the viewer immediately knows that that person is in trouble and that something bad is going to happen. It's that kind of nod that the tension is ramping up. And as soon as you see someone or perceive them as vulnerable as that person that is isolated from the rest of the pack, it kind of serves two purposes because depending on how you feel about that person, you could get that kind of excitement or glee in the, yeah, we're going to take down the that person. Or you can be, oh my goodness, this poor, poor person. And you know, it's, it's making you really empathize with that character. So I think that making a character be isolated or present as isolated is a really, really strong nod to the reader that this something bad is going to happen. 
Another really common trope with isolation is small towns, you know, and I, because I'm not an avid horror watcher or reader, like our uh, specialist Charlotte, uh, (laughs) my reference to this has got to be Hot Fuzz, but that to me is like, it's a terrifying comedy. It's it's honestly scary, but I think, Melinda, you use a small town in Hold Back the Tide. I mean, what is so terrifying and scary about small towns and the isolation that's involved with that i think with a small town what you have to think about is how much survival relies on cooperation so um i'm gonna keep flogging this uh pack predator analogy till till it's dead completely when you live in a small town you are against your will to some extent part of a pack that already exists part of a herd that already exists just by existing there just by living there And so the idea of being isolated within your own community because you are not part of the pack um, in a place that is your home, in a place that is is supposed to be where you're safe, is is absolutely terrifying. The idea of being the person, the um the the village outcast, the village witch, the 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 person who doesn't fit in. Um nobody wants to be that person, and particularly because when you talk about packs and animals in that sense, there is usually a member of the pack who is kind of the omega, um, who serves as kind of the whipping, the whipping boy for the entire community. And nobody wants to be that. Nobody wants to be the the person who unites the rest of the community by being the common enemy. And anytime you are isolated, you risk putting yourself into that position of being being the outcast, being shunned, and not being part of of what's going forward and the idea of that in your home in the place where you live and have to function is is excruciatingly terrifying like how do you cope with that as one of the odd kids out you know in high school and things like that I can definitely relate to that when you're reading stories about people who are isolated for various different reasons those of us you know, here I'm, I'm definitely generalizing but obviously a lot of people who love reading we often you know teased for it or or have kind of that background of of being slightly different from the rest of them. And it's nice to see kind of and empathize with characters who have kind of experienced the same things, even if it's in a different way. Should we talk a bit about the thing that kind of goes hand in hand with small communities, isolated settlements is, and this is particularly interesting um, nowadays when we live in a global world, but the idea of communication um, and how very often in in you know horror movies we see the the storm blowing in and the telephone lines coming down and the lights flickering and going out and suddenly you know the line is dead and they can't get through and it's this kind of feeling of like right that is the world cut off forever but these days like that's so unusual for that to happen you know most people can stay in touch like with like a tiny phone in their hands. So how do we, I'm just thinking, like how does um, this global connection we have affect the idea of being physically isolated in a small place? I think often authors shy away from technology um, in, in horror stories for that particular reason, because I think they imagine that by having this, the availability there, the, um, the that they will have taken away a huge part of the of, of the tension of the horror because the idea you can just call for help or perhaps Google a solution um, derails or cheapens the story. But I think I think if you're going to write horror stories that are set in in the present, you can use 
technology to kind of further the sense of isolation. I mean, we're living in a time when we've never been so connected and yet we are in the middle of, amongst other epidemics, a loneliness epidemic. We're living in a time where more and more people are reporting feeling alone and, and feeling isolated from communities, despite the fact that there is a community for pretty much everyone at the end of your fingertips. All you have to do is type a few words and find it. Um, and I think there are ways that authors could use technology um, to kind of ramp up those feelings of, of isolation, particularly when you think of apps like Snapchat, where I think um, things disappear after they're sent or after they're seen. So you could easily, if you were having a human-based element of horror in your horror story, you could easily have the antagonist using Snapchat, utilising this technology to send these terrible messages um, that immediately disappear as soon as the, the protagonist has seen them, which then puts the protagonist in a potential position of being psychologically isolated because they are saying they're being attacked or persecuted, and yet there is no evidence. I can see why on the surface you might balk at the idea of, of using technology. And I mean, I, I'm speaking very, very vaguely because I didn't use it in Hold Back the Tide. It was set in the, the turn of the century. Um, so, and not even the last century, the century before. So there's no real opportunity for technology. But I think if I were going to write a, a modern horror, I wouldn't shy away from using technology. I wouldn't use a storm to knock out the power lines and, um, I would utilise the technology in, in that sense of isolation and as a tool to kind of further engage the reader with, with what's going on with the protagonist. Definitely. I mean, as a huge science fiction fan and uh, a real lover of science fiction horror mashups, I definitely think that there's a lot of technology that can be used for isolation and horror. I mean, just thinking about something like Terminator, okay, you know, it's not the most uh, contemporary example, but the fact that you've got this kind of super far ahead advanced technology that's coming back in time and no one else knows what he is or thinks that what he is is even possible, knows that time travel is possible. Again, you know, in, in that sense, you have the psychological isolation, but then you've also got the, the, the physical isolation because they have no one else to help them. You know, that's terrifying. Or, or you know, just thinking about Alien, which, uh, you know, Charlotte and I love Alien. I think it was the, the like slogan on the um, advertising material and so on. It's like, no one can hear you scream in space. <laughs> you know, it's things like that. You know, if you're on an alien world, you might be the only person of your race or you could be just on a really advanced starship but you're out in the middle of nowhere there is literally there's there's no one in in you know the next galaxy it could be you know depending on the story there's so even you know going beyond just mobile phones and the internet and so on there's definitely places for technology to be isolating and terrifying in its own way but i do still kind of miss you know that whole old fashioned thing where the person is like terrified and going to call the police and they go and try and pick up the phone, but the phone's dead. And then they go down and look at the cord that's been And the cut. cord is cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love those moments. And it is, I, I don't know, sometimes I think it's a shame that we don't have those cord cut moments, but I'm sure we'll come up with a different kind of equally symbolic and terrifying moment uh, for scenes like that. <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned all the uh, alien and things like that, because when I was thinking about this and technology and how it's used to inspire horror and isolation, I came up with quite a good couple of examples with science fiction. So, I mean, the best one is perhaps HAL in 2001, where you've got this ultimate technology that turns against you and isolates you quite literally. And then, of course, there's the whole Isaac Asimov and the three laws and everything, which isn't necessarily isolation, but it is the idea of technology that is supposed to look after you turning on you. I thought of Doctor Who um, and the Master when it was John Sims and how he used technology to control the world. But also, when you said Snapchat just a minute ago, Melinda, it made me think of an excellent story in Maria Regan's uh, anthology, Phantoms, where it was exactly that. It was taking photos that kind of almost disappeared instantly, but just showed something terrible. And it was really tense. And the fact that you had this technology that was kind of working against you and you didn't know why and nobody else could figure it out, it was it was really atmospheric. But thinking about your cord cutting me, <laughs> I, I have put down here in my notes, but you've always got magic slash demon forces slash your phone is just broken or no signal. If you wanted to go for that classic cord cutting element, I think there are so many different ways of doing it. Uh, like Melinda says, you can set it in, in the past or if you've chosen to set it in the present, then you quite, could quite easily believe that there's somewhere in the, the Scottish Highlands where signal doesn't reach. So I think there's a lot of, of ways that technology can be used against people and used to increase isolation, but even when it's working, can make you feel completely vulnerable. Hey, and don't forget the tr- you know the the sci-fi thing of uh, it's an EMP. Suddenly, all the power and electrics go out. Oh yeah. <laughs> Can I show you something while we're talking about HAL? Well, um, not show you, but obviously show you audibly something while we're talking about HAL and, and robots and stuff. Alexa, open the pod bay doors. I'm sorry, no. I'm afraid I can't do that. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> I programmed my robot. <laughs> that's excellent. So, yeah, so far she hasn't turned on me. I'm relieved and happy. We get along well. That is good. Also, I don't know if anybody else has seen uh, Eureka. It was a, a series on Sci-Fi Channel a few years back now. Uh, no, just nope. me. Yeah, I'm definitely the biggest dork here. That's fine. Uh, great show, really fun. Uh, but there isn't the, the um, one of the main characters lives in this kind of smart house, and there is an episode where the house does turn on them, and oh my god, it terrified me. Especially because the house is like a character that you come to really love in itself, and then I'm not sure if I was more scared by the fact that this, you know, the technology could turn on the it, its humans, but that its personality and and the thing that I loved could be so taken away by this kind of um, malfunction. I think that might have scared me more because I really loved her. Uh, (laughs) That's a sidetrack into my brain. (laughs) But I do think that some of of the charm and some of the technology, uh, you know, as you say, it definitely can be done and to make people isolated with all this technology that we have now anyway. But Certainly, I think Buffy would have lost some of its charm if, uh, you know, they could just manage, manage to call her on her phone when the apocalypse was happening every time because, you know, it's just more fun to see her friends flailing about when she's been out patrolling and doesn't know that someone has gone and captured Xander or something like that. Or she's the Buffy rat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My favourite episodes. Buffy rat is great. <laughs> 
Are there common differences in how isolation is framed for men and women in fiction? For instance, one that I find interesting is thinking about the hermit, because a lot of the male older mentor characters, you know, I'm thinking Obi-Wan here because Star Wars nerd alert, but he, you know, he's a hermit. He's by himself and he's been out on by himself for ages and people think he's a little strange, but you know, he's just a hermit. Whereas if a woman is out on her own and chooses to live her life as, as a hermit, it, you know, she's crazy or she's, you would tend to see those characters framed much more negatively. On the other hand, though, there is, of course, Olga, who we all love, and she's basically a hermit too, but she's amazing. So Olga just, you know, sticks her finger up to anyone who will say otherwise. But what do you guys think about the difference between men and women when it comes to isolation? I think there is a definite gender bias, and I think it goes back to to what we perceive to be the roles of men and women in society. So the, the woman's role traditionally is the homemaker. She's the nurturer. It's her job to care. And in order to care, you have to be around people and, and want to be around people. So if as a woman, you isolate yourself, you remove yourself from that role, you're automatically going to be interpreted as not nurturing, which is not caring. So going against your own, your own gender and your own nature. So becoming therefore something unnatural and weird. I think a lot of it's to do with how we perceive women and their role in society as to how tolerant we are willing to be of them on their own. That's really interesting you should mention that because I've got written down in my notes um, male fears because we talked about this with monsters a little while back about how some women are monstrous in a manner that really plays on men's fears. But I think I think you're quite right that women are supposed to be domestic and homely and all this kind of thing and look after the family. And if they're not doing that, then automatically there's this, oh, she's kind of independent. She doesn't need any men. This this is slightly unnerving. We should investigate this a bit more. And then it kind of, it's the witch craze all over again, really, isn't it? Well, exactly that. And I think that uncontrollability of, of a woman who's alone, because a woman who's alone clearly doesn't need a man to provide for her. She's obviously developed and negotiated her life so she is able to support herself and be self-sufficient and the second she has done that she has made men somewhat redundant and I think the thing that scares men more than anything more than monsters more than any kind of horror is the idea that they aren't necessary or, or needed. That's really interesting yeah I hadn't thought about it in that sense but I also um was thinking about Victoria Schwab's debut novel, The Near Witch, where the story of the witch, it's a, a tale to frighten people. And I guess that's pretty standard when we hear stories about witches and so on. But then they actually have two older unmarried women who live together on the edge of town. And this is like the most horrible thing that they could do. And clearly these women are terrible and, and you know, the kids shouldn't go and talk to them and they shouldn't be spending time with them because these women are clearly just so falling so far out of their, you know, what is acceptable. And, you know, that's really sad. And the suspicion of the town, when things start to go wrong, the town turn on these women straight away for not basically conforming to their expectations. Yeah, I found that worked really well, and but it's very telling, you know, and I, I definitely agree with you, Melinda. It's There's definitely a bias and it's it's really unfortunate where 
men can be hermits that turn out to be mentors and and wise sages. The women who are ostracized are called witches and and other terrible names. Well, men are supposed to be able to look after themselves. Women aren't. Women are supposed to stay in the kitchen or the cave or wherever and let the men go out and do all the dangerous, dirty work while we uh, keep things nice and breed children for them. I thought it was interesting thinking about witches and the idea that generally witches are seen as the little old lady who lives on her own or possibly the beautiful woman who lives on her own and is clearly a servant of the devil. But the interesting thing about witches, if you think about it, is they are isolated most of the time, but when they do choose to meet up, they meet up with other women. So it's not just that they're on their own and eschew men in general in their home life. It's like when they go out to practice their craft or whatever, they go and practice with other women, therefore doubly suggesting that men are not necessary in any way at all. And we wonder why so many of them are persecuted. Ha, huh. exactly. Yeah, I was just wondering whether that's what Melinda was saying about men being expected to be able to look after themselves and women not being expected to look after themselves plays into the reason why we see so many female victims in horror movies. You know, the woman running screaming through the woods trope and often a young woman as well. And how very often, how, you know, very rarely we see that kind of replaced with a male character. As an audience, are we naturally inclined to laugh at such a thing or disbelieve it? Like, why are we so happy to see a screaming woman on the screen and feel like that's an appropriate, she is an appropriate character to put in that that sort of situation? Well, it's emasculating for men. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess there is potentially a biological bias for it. Like because women have lower testosterone levels, we do tend to be physically weaker and we are as a rule, I don't wanna I don't wanna speak to you generally, because people come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, but women by and large are smaller in stature than men and we are less muscular thanks to a different distribution of hormones. So there is a kind of a logical basis in humans, at least, to have women as the victims. I think maybe there is there is potentially an argument there for it being slightly more believable. However, it is very boring and stupid and furthers the idea that women are, are weak and need protecting and need need a man around to kind of to keep them on the on the straight and narrow and to keep them safe. When in in reality, um, most women are persecuted by men. I've never been persecuted by a monster particularly, but I've had a fair few nasty old boyfriends. It's really interesting what you say like that, Melinda, because I was thinking about the idea of it being understandable and relatable. And women are naturally smaller and need men to look after them. And sorry, that's how they're perceived, not actually how they are. If you're seeing someone run across the screen and it's a woman being chased, you can kind of understand it because society has programmed us that way that women are the ones who run away, whereas they have programmed us that men who run away should be mocked. So women who run away are just understandable and and adhering to their feminine wiles. But men who do, you instantly lose interest and empathy with that character because he shouldn't be running. So I think that's why men tend to meet sticky ends as they go around the corner or fall into the river or do something like that, whereas it's usually the women who get chased. But I think there's also another element that you mentioned there as well, Melinda, of thinking back to the idea of primal fears. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but 
there's this idea that walking down a street, if you're on your own as a woman and you see a man on the other side, I will cross the road and I do feel uncomfortable if I hear people walking behind me down a street. I will glance in a shop window to see whether it's male or female, to see whether they're looking at me, whether they're looking at their phone, that kind of thing. So I think for women today, even in our wonderful society where it's not as bad the oppression, I still think there's an element that we can really understand being a woman on your own, being chased, being followed, that you don't necessarily have as a man. Yeah, and I think it's it's also interesting when you see that trope inverted. So say with Buffy, a lot of instances where the woman can fight back or or isn't the one running away, they often have magical powers or they have something about them that makes them special, better, stronger, better able to deal with that situation. Whereas on the flip side, when you see men running away from something scary, for instance, you know, it it will tend to be something completely out of the ordinary. It's not just another human being. It'll be a huge giant cockroach alien monster with fangs and slime and ah! And it's like, you know, as as you were saying, you know, that's kind of allowable. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, running from just another human isn't necessarily seen as something that is allowed for men. That's really sad. I really think that's that's actually the way, I, I mean, I really enjoyed your cockroach impression, <laughs> but I also thought it's really sad that, you know, we, as women, the things that that we are terrified the most of are men, you know, and and the idea of being followed by a man that we don't know, we feel threatened in that. And yet for men, that it is absolutely does not work the other way around. Like being followed by a woman is just totally has the opposite um, kind of idea. It's to- totally different. And the fact that, you know, you were saying that for a man for him to be to feel threatened, it has to be, I don't know, maybe a gang of men with knives. It, it's like a danger in numbers, but or it has to be a, a bloody ravening monster. I think that's just, yeah, it's like when you break, it's one of those things that, you know, we're so used to seeing, but when you actually stop and talk about it and break it down, I just think that's so depressing, isn't it? That like the, the, the story is so, so different um, for, for these two genders. It's almost like sexism is endemic. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, a bold statement there. I know. <laughs> Not sure I'd go that far. <laughs> no, I'm depressed. Can you just do your cockroach impression again? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was also thinking about when, you know, it's turned on its heads in, in kind of a reversal as well. It's always something completely different. So thinking, obviously, the power by Naomi Alderman and the women get a physical mutation which makes them more powerful and suddenly it's the men who are frightened walking down the street at night alone. Or even, say, Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Time. It's, you know, what's what's kind of fun in that is that he has based it on science, real biology, and that spiders are matriarchal a lot of spiders will that you know the female will eat the male after she's had sex with them because you know there's no point in them anymore is there you know they're they're here to just uh fuck and then yeah well nutrition for my (laughs) exactly (laughs) spring i think there's a one a post-coital snack (laughs) 
Exactly. And if, if the closest thing happens to your partner, well, you're done. Like, you're finished. They're not any good for a while, so why not? Exactly. Like, most men, it's a one-shot deal, and then they need a lot of recovery time. So, like, I guess. I, guess is the, I feel sense. like this could be the one real weakness built in. <laughs> Why haven't we? Why have we not taken advantage of this before? <laughs> I know we should learn from the spiders. Uh, we really should. <laughs> I'd like that on a t-shirt. We haven't really learned from this, or, or or gone beyond it, or seen that we can have that within our own society or within our own actual physical reality. Why? I guess is the kind of thing that we come back to again and again on this podcast is we have these genres, science fiction, fantasy, horror, where we have our whole imaginations to create something completely different or whatever. And we just keep regurgitating the same patriarchal values that we see in life, which is understandable, but also a little sad that we can't maybe see something different or, or imagine a world which doesn't replicate these things where women are inferior. The thing is, when you try to, you, there's just a lot of pushback about it being unrealistic. So because um, the values that we have are so entrenched, and I'm going back to um, Naomi Alderman's The Power, one of the most interesting things I think about the book is that when the women do get the power, there is a moment where people consider that perhaps the world will become the kind of calm, peaceful kind of utopia that perhaps was promised under leadership of women and what happens is it goes completely the opposite way because women have one example of a successful power structure to learn from and it unfortunately is a patriarchal one so they just mimic it and end up perpetuating the same level of of um, degradation and violence upon men that men have historically wreaked on women i thought it was a clever and brave thing to do because it would have been very easy to kind of hammer home this very heavy-handed moral message about women being like the kinder sex or the more nurturing sex, the fairer sex. Instead, it looked a little more closely at the nature of power and how power works and how power is respected. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, it, it is, as they say, power corrupts absolutely mm-hmm. or absolute power corrupts absolutely. And mm. yeah, it's it's very true. And I think made for a far more interesting book. I don't think we ever would have liked that book nearly as much if it had just become some sort of utopian view of society when women ruled the earth. Although that does bring to mind one of my favourite lines from Jurassic Park, which uh, (laughs) uh, is, uh, what is it? Dinosaurs eat man, women inherit the earth. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) I want a t-shirt with that on. I mean, I think by and large we would probably do a better job just because we haven't historically spent our entire evolutionary cycle trying to kill and maim and overpower everything around us and so I think by and large we would probably be a little better and I think certainly the moment when we're looking at the real world and how governments are responding to the current crisis we're seeing hugely different approaches in countries governed by women than countries governed predominantly by men and we are seeing varying success rates accordingly so actually we have really good models right now for how women in power do behave and it turns out we can do it quite well yes (laughs) isolation 
can be both safe and unsafe. Now, we have talked about how isolation makes us vulnerable and therefore unsafe, but I would argue that sometimes that's not altogether true. Because sometimes, as we've kind of mentioned, that, you know, in the small towns or the that kind of trope where the town or the community turns against you and you become isolated because you are separate from them. It's like an us and them mentality. And in that sense, being separated from, from them, you know, it basically you see the threat and you isolate yourself from the threat. That can be the safe approach. And, and one thing I'm, I'm thinking of is We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is one of my all-time favourite novels. I think Shirley Jackson is incredible. But those characters, they, they live away from society and they deliberately isolate themselves from society as a safe haven. And the only times that they really sort of end up transgressing their, their feeling of safety and that home life is when external males come in and insert themselves into their safely isolated little bubble. So I do think that isolation can sometimes be perceived as safe, but I personally can't think of any, maybe, you know, anyone else chime in, of of where men are portrayed in in a situation where that isolation becomes a safety net for them. Well, I was going to say, is it a gendered thing then? The idea of safety in isolation, um, is that hugely gendered? Oh, wait, no, I have one. Luke Skywalker in the... Um... How did I not get that one? <laughs> Luke Skywalker <laughs> in the in the Star Wars sequels, he uh, takes himself off, isolates himself after he realises that he's seeing evil everywhere and everything and everyone and maybe... Um, teaching children isn't a good job for him. So he, uh, yeah, isolates himself quite effectively until young Ray goes to seek him out. So I think there are, um, but then that didn't that didn't um, go down well with male audiences, did it? Like The Last Jedi gets absolutely slammed. Um, it's my favourite of the new ones, by the way. Um, but it gets absolutely slated, the idea that Luke Skywalker, and a lot of the pushback from, from male viewers was the idea that Luke would never, he would never turn his back on his duty, he would never go away and isolate himself. Um, despite the fact we have the precedent of Obi-Wan doing it, um, to an extent, on Tatooine, we have Yoda who takes himself off to the Dagobah system to uh, have a nice lonely chill out time for a while, um, for the same reasons as Luke, oddly enough, because he felt he'd failed. So, but yeah, so we do. There are examples of men doing it, but I think it's it's phrased differently. So when women isolate, they're hiding. When whereas when men doing it, they're protecting. They're still protecting by take by removing themselves from a situation where they might have made things worse. Gosh, men are terrible. <laughs> I kind of want to respond to your Luke Skywalker point, but I don't want us to get dragged into the whole thing because I think there's so much to talk about in the Last Jedi. But I know what you mean about. Um, Luke Skywalker's isolation bringing a lot of criticism but I did wonder if it might be because it feels like an author construct to me because at the end of the the last film film what is it six I'll lose track now um the return of the Jedi he's kind of like the most powerful Jedi around and 
at the end of the day, you could solve any problem by just sending in Luke Skywalker. And they wanted to do a film that wasn't about Luke Skywalker. So you've kind of got to remove him, which means you've either got to kill him off or get rid of him because he's the Dumbledore of everything, isn't he? He's sort of the one who can, can fix it all. So isolation, I felt there was more to move the story along. And you're quite right that it was not in keeping with his character. And I think that was why people fought back saying, well, Luke could never do that. And the answer to that is, well, the story needed him to do that. And that's why he went off. Well, also, 30 years have passed. It's very possible he became someone who wasn't... I'm very different to the person I was 30 years ago. I mean, like in many ways, not least I'm significantly taller. That's true, but then are you the chosen one? That's the question. I think when it comes back to that, because Luke is the chosen one and the big boy and the one who kind of brings everything together to then think he might go back on that. But I mean, like I said, we could have a whole whole question on each Star Wars episode, I feel. Each film would warrant a whole episode all to itself. Well, it's also, you said, Chosen One, which is basically like the power card, one of the power cards in like Cards Against Humanity. Chosen One, slap down that on the table and it's like, okay, all the rules are changed. (laughs) But bringing it back to to more sort of a horror level, the one thing I always think about isolation and being safe as a concept is when it comes to zombies. And you would think isolation would be the best thing there because you don't want to be with anyone who might risk turning on you and all this kind of thing. But zombie movies are usually about a group fighting together to stay alive. So even when the risk of somebody turning around and biting you and killing you or ripping your brains out or whatever is the most important threat to you. People still find ways to come together and to live together. And eventually someone gets bitten and turns on it. That's part of the, the trope. But I just thought that was really interesting. And there's a film, one of the few films I can't watch and I couldn't watch for a long time was Cabin Fever. And I watched it one night and I had to turn it off partway through and couldn't watch for months, and I forced myself to watch it again and watch it all the way through to get over this this fear. But for me, what really got it was when there's a cabin fever is where a group of students go and live in a cabin in the woods, um, and the local water supply is polluted, and they all end up with this horrible flesh-eating virus thing. But after a couple of them have died, one girl gets it, and they leave her in a shed, and they lock the door. And it is the most sensible thing to do, I suppose, if someone's got a flesh-eating virus and you're in a confined space. But it absolutely terrified me, this idea that the safe thing to do was to isolate this person and to isolate them in squalor and just leave them. And I found that absolutely terrifying, this turning the idea of isolation as being something unsafe to something that you need for your safety terrified me. It took me a long time before I could go back and watch it properly. And I think it goes back to what Melinda was saying earlier about it being a primal thing that is hardwired into us, that there is safety in numbers. And anything that try and goes against that, I find quite unnerving. So we've talked about lots of different types of horror and lots of different sort of horror antagonists. And I think the type of isolation you experience is very different when the horror is coming from an external source, such as the thing, or the mist or alien, as Megan so beautifully put in earlier, uh, versus when it's kind of more homegrown and very human, something within the community, something like maybe Shining or the Saw or Hush. What do you think, Melinda, about this? Does it make a difference? Because I know obviously in Hold Back the Tide, you had sort of a community that was having the isolation, but also some monsters. (laughs) So how did you go about with that? Spoiler warning for the monsters there. Um, so if you haven't read the book, sorry, the, the twist is now um, not so twisty for you. 
I think if your monster is human, they have to be that their horror, the way that they manifest their horror has to be rooted in, in known behavior. And the effect that has has to be something that humans fear happening because of other humans. So um, the difference would be human on human horror, physical attacks, assault, whether that is physical or mental or perhaps even sexual um, and so on. Whereas if your monster is of an alien origin, then you can you can be a little more creative with the, the effect they can have. So you could have they could be vaporized or their form could be changed or their mind taken over and, and reprogrammed or controlled. If you have a human horror, you need to, to kind of root it in the human experience because otherwise you lose, I think, any effects you've built from creating this atmosphere of isolation and tension. I think when the horror is, as we were sort of saying, very human, very homegrown, I think there is always this doubt within you that this suspicion that not only might the person next to you be the one that has the horror that you need to isolate from, but whether also it's within yourself. And that can be as isolating as thinking maybe, you know, someone is is the bad guy and trying to isolate from them and then going, well, what if it's what if it's in me? And we were talking about zombies and things like that and how isolating it can be when it's internal. It's very psychological. Whereas, like we we're saying with monsters, it's very much well, the thing, the mist and alien, they've all got guns or weapons or something, and there's something external you can fight, and you're isolated if you're locked in a room, whereas when it's something that is a bit more human, it could be much more relatable to to the protagonist and much more terrifying in a kind of, this could be me in a few minutes rather than just, I could be dead. The most terrifying, but in a very different way. So in horror, we've talked about when you can have physical isolation from other people, or you can have psychological isolation. But there are plenty of books, Holbeck the Tide being one of them, when you combine both of those elements. And the risk there, of course, is that you're just going to overload your reader and put your protagonist in an incredibly stressful situation. So how do you balance that out? How do you kind of make sure that it's not tension all the time? And what elements would you work in, like humour or heartwarming elements and things like that, just to to make it a bit more of a a better-paced book? I think you have to remember that um, you're writing a story about humans dealing with um, a stressful, tense situation. So you can't, you have to use um, a very, very fine brush and apply your horror very sparingly. So you have to kind of interpret. And um, one of the things Alva does actually in the book is she has a very finely honed sense of, of dark humour. Like Gallo's humour is her, is her fallback. It's where she goes to when she is feeling particularly tense or stressed and I think it's because it is how we as humans often deal with with moments of pressure and and tenseness and horror uh, we make light of it we make a joke of it we try to find some levity in the situation if only to stop ourselves from becoming overwhelmed by what's happening to us so interspersing your moments of, of tension knowing when to ramp it up but knowing when it's it's not appropriate like it shouldn't be tense all the time um you can't overplay your hand i think you have to understand you only have one real shot to um expose the monster for example and so you have to know when to use that and when to rein it back and introduce more of the human element to your story which is what makes it relatable which is what makes your reader hopefully able to put themselves in the shoes of the protagonist and understand why they are perhaps reacting the way they are to what's happening. 
maybe make their actions forgivable. Like we've all seen the horror films where the the girl runs upstairs and we all know you shouldn't run upstairs. But if, if you make the character relatable enough and understandable enough, we will forgive them that despite knowing it's not the maybe the correct thing to do. I think another example of of horror where it's overdone. Um, the trick with isolation is it's a really, really effective tool, but it's only scary until it isn't. And when it stops being scary is when it becomes repetitive, when same kind of things keep happening and they're not used. So if you think about the film Signs, the first time we see the alien in the film Signs, oh my God, horrifying, absolutely awful. The moment where it just split second appearance on screen at a child's birthday party, absolutely gobsmacking me like i get chills just thinking about that moment um but then later of course you see the aliens in full flow in the living room and they lose all the impact they had because they were they ended up being overused and all of their the good work that was done to kind of ramp up the tension and the sense of isolation in that film as well actually um the way they live out on the farm on their own the way there is no real access to the outside world and um, the way the aliens jam signals so the tv doesn't work phone lines don't work um, the way they then further isolate themselves in a very small basement. Absolutely brilliant until it stops being brilliant because they just go one step too far. That is the thing you have to remember not to do is not to push it too far. So push it, push it as far as you can, but be aware that in order to make it truly effective, you can't use the same technique every time. Instead, you have to balance that with moments of humanity, moments where people eat or sleep or fall in love or make a joke or, I don't know, sort their socks, do something human and normal that that we've all done, even in times of horror, chores still only doing. I have to admit, I really did love the bits in your book where Alva stopped to eat and see what she was eating and I was like, oh, that sounds so nice. (laughs) I really like writing food. Um, Writing food is one of my favourite things. It showed, it was good. (laughs) I find that interesting, actually, because what you're saying is is also I kind of feel like isolation, I don't think isolation is enough to be that kind of final moment or the final big horrific moment. Isolation isn't quite enough. Isolation seems to be the the builder of tension, the that build up, you know, increasing the temperature as you go along, but it isn't quite enough for the final thing it has to be a little bit more well no of course it isn't because the final thing has to be confrontation and what confrontation is there in isolation either the thing has to get in at you or you have to go out to the thing you can't you can't hide away inside all the time unless your country is being mismanaged by the government in which case if you can stay inside you absolutely and definitely should even if you're bored well, yes. I just wanted to put that code <laughs> on there. Like, I didn't accidentally want to kind of advocate for people going out to confront life. Like, don't go out and con- like confront life. Stay inside. Yes. Confront nothing. Yes. We're recording this virtually. Don't worry. We're not all in the same room. We are perfectly yeah. distanced. <laughs> uh, we are all safe. Not even in the same country. <laughs> not even the same planet. <laughs> Couldn't be any further apart. But yeah, like tension, like isolation, it can't be the end result of a thing. Unless, I guess, the story is flipped and isolation is is the monster. So if you had someone who is imprisoned for a, perhaps a crime they didn't commit, um, or someone who is locked away in their own mind in a kind of horrible science fiction way. Eesh, yes. In which case, I- isolation then is 
it is the monster. It's not the thing protecting you from it or, yeah. Awesome. I mean, I think we've covered isolation pretty well. I mean, it is one of these really common themes that we see time and time again in horror. And as you've said, you know, it is, it comes down to the fact that we are social creatures. We are pack animals and we feel safer and I guess more comfortable, more at home when we are with other people, others just around us. And it's really terrifying if we are physically isolated or if we are psychologically isolated. And that is why it is just such a good tool for horror writers, be it of books, short stories, films, television, whatever. Isolation is a great trope that will continue to pop up in in horror, I think, for many years to come. But thank you so much, Melinda, for joining us. It's been really great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.